So part of this has two reasons. One is I'm trying to teach you a Greek term. The other one is to make sure that you're awake at this point. Christos Aneste means Christ is risen. And it was the first greeting in the Greek Christian world uh, which had a theological significance. Uh, when someone says to you, Christos Aneste, and the reason why I paused was to see if anyone would actually give me the corresponding answer, the answer would be, Alitos Aneste. Christos Aneste is Christ is risen. Alitos, truly, He is risen. So we want to try that. Okay, you look to each other, your other partner, and we're going to talk Greek today to each other. So if you say, I don't understand you, it's okay, he's talking Greek. <laughs> so you turn to the other person and you say, Christos Aneste, and the other person replies and says, Alitos Aneste. You try that. Okay, so this is one term that you can go back and you say Christos Aneste, Alitos Aneste. I also realize maybe our church, we're not so used to, to looking to the left or the right during the service. Then you look, oh, yo, you, you're actually here. <laughs> now, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, it begins from uh, verse 1, obviously. So open your Bibles and keep your, keep your fingers there because we're going to try and go through it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul has actually begun a, an exposition about the resurrection. Now, unlike most Easter sermons, uh, he's not going about trying to prove the resurrection. In fact, you will find uh, in his first opening statement in verse 1, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And then verse 3, For what I receive I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Nowadays, when we have Easter sermons, we will talk about the evidence for the resurrection, how a body could have actually risen, how the evidence says that it has to be true. Paul is not doing that. Because Paul is, in a way, speaking to a group of people who had actually physically seen him. It's almost like saying, you know, uh, the pastor exists. Lah. You don't have to prove that he exists because you see him and you hear him with your own eyes. And so Paul is not really talking about evidence of the resurrection. He's instead dealing with issues arising from their understanding of the resurrection. And so what really is this issue about the resurrection? Will you take a moment and just think in your mind, what does the resurrection mean for you, personally, for you? What does it mean for you? And in the light of that truth, if you believe it to be truth, and if you, like Paul says, you hold firmly to this, how then do you live your life? You see, in our world, we commonly divide it between two types of people. People who believe that there is a life after death, and in the Christian understanding, we call it resurrection, and people who don't, 
And the ones who don't basically believe that life is meant to be lived now, lived to its fullest, its fullest point. And that's why you have that statement uh, that goes later on, let's eat and drink for tomorrow you die. That kind of life essentially is a throwing away of all things because it's only existing for now. And you hold on and cling on to life. If you ask yourself, many of the moral decisions that we make are quite dependent on how it will affect our life. But quite often when we make that decision, it is how it will affect our life now. And the issue is, if you live according to the now, a period of three score and ten years maybe, and 80 if you are very strong, then this life is very short in comparison to the rest of eternity. Are you living your life according to the 70 years you have now, which is going to determine how you live your life for the rest of eternity? 70 times 70 times infinity. And so which life are you caring for right now? The immediate comfortable life or is it the life that's going to be spent in an eternity in perfection? But how you live now, in a way, kind of determines that ending, that hope. So what is the reality that you live? So many times when we come to moral decisions, and I deal with some of my corporate friends, he said, hey, Ron, you know, uh, life, uh, if I do this, I'm going to lose my job. Life will be hard. I said, you know, life will be a lot harder after. <laughs> And we commonly preach these things because at wake service and funeral service, we want to say that this person lived according to a truth that is not seen, a truth that is eternal, a truth that there is more to life than now. Paul is talking about this in this particular chapter in 15. Now, there are a lot of questions that may or may not be answered in this and you may want to wrestle with it or come and talk to me. One of the questions that he may possibly answer is, hey, when I die, uh, should I uh, cremate because it's cheaper in the columbarium or should I bury? What happens if I kena accident and you know, my, I got missing parts? Do my relatives have to go and make sure they pull everything, put everything together and pack it in and then only okay? How does the resurrection affect my decision about how you handle my body? That is one of the answers that is given that hopefully will come from this passage. Or you might say, hmm, when I uh, pass away and uh, I'm put under the ground, uh, will I feel anything? Will I be this disembodied soul that goes around and wanders around? Uh, what happens to my spirit and soul? I, I suppose if these are some of the questions you are thinking about, uh, you might be wanting to pay attention <laughs> to the answers that might come around. So let me first deal with this. Paul first asks this question, and he says, uh, we find this in verse 29. Let me find my place here, 15, 29. Yep. Now, if there is no resurrection... In what will those who do, 
who are baptized for the dead. What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Okay, I'm beginning at the end part of an argument that Paul is making, which is a rhetorical argument. He states, now, obviously in a, in a rather rhetorical way, if there is no resurrection, then why do all these things? And some people have argued about this, like, hey, why does Paul talk about uh, do who are baptized for the dead? Got such thing one. Um, and I, I do believe people do get confused. I, I once had a, a, to conduct a, or rather I was asked by a, a friend of the church. So someone who's not a member of the church, but who is a guest of the church. And uh, she was Christian, a doctor. She had a few children, but her husband was kind of like free thinker. Her husband suffered a massive heart attack, passed away. I went to the, the emergency unit, uh, but despite all attempts of the... And they, and they were both doctors. Uh, so it was doubly painful. You're a doctor and you can't even save your own husband kind of thing. And so one thing she asked at that point in time, Pastor, um, I know he didn't come to church to get baptised, but I think uh, in his heart of hearts, he may have been a Christian. And then she asked the, the killer question, would you be so kind as to baptise him now? I took a deep breath, like some of you all are doing now. <laughs> and what do you think I said? How would you answer? Um, I said this, my dear sister, if during his lifetime he never acknowledged the church as being of his family, I cannot do it in all conscience after he's dead. If he didn't want to do it when he's alive, I can't do it on him after he's dead. But whatever it is, we trust that God is loving and kind and God knows our hearts, even if our actions betray us. So we leave it to God. But I think the main concern that she had was whether I would conduct a Christian funeral for her husband. And for that, I said, yes, I will. Not to profess that he's a Christian, but to profess that he is made in the image of God. And because he's made in the image of God, he deserves a funeral that honours God and also honours the fact that God made him. So you understand my philosophy is that. Like, we do have some pastors who say, no, 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 only my church members. Uh, but where able to, I will conduct a Christian funeral even for those who are atheists. It gives, as I said, funerals are not for the dead. They are for the living, for those who have to deal with it. Okay, I digress a little bit. But if the resurrection were not true, and Paul's point here, it seems people say, you mean there's such a thing as baptizing for the dead? No. What it means is, you see, baptism, when you remember the ritual of baptism, the water signifies your death. So you come under the water, your death to this physical human life. And as you come out from the water, you come into the new life of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. So in the common terms, when Paul talks about baptism, we are all dead. Every moment, thousands and millions of your cells are dying, corruptible. But in us, as Paul says, you are this uh, broken clay jar that holds this immeasurable treasure. That treasure is this Spirit of God that has been placed in us that pours out in the life-giving Spirit of Christ Jesus. Uh, 
And so, um, you see, if, the, if his logic that Paul goes is, if we are being baptised as dead people in flesh and blood, not that you're not breathing, but as dead people, people who will eventually die, into the life, but you don't understand or you don't agree that there is a resurrection, then why bother going through that? That is his point. Then he gives another example. He says, uh, and as for us, himself and, and his apostles and his friends, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, he says, if there is no resurrection and this life is the only life you have, you guard it like crazy. Because there is no hope after death. There is absolutely no hope after death. And so if I may summarize what Paul is saying in this, in this uh, verse 29 to 34, he says, resurrection means endless hope. Uh, if you're trying to see how come it's underlined, you have a sermon outline. <laughs> and in the sermon outline, there are those blanks to fill in. That's one of the answers there so that you're tracking with me. So resurrection means endless hope. Why? Because I know that this world is broken and because this world is broken, no matter how hard I try, I still can't fix it, yet I'm hopeful because one day there will be a reset button. You know, uh, your computer, <laughs> hang. <laughs> to get it going again, reset. Resurrection means handless hope, but no resurrection means hopeless end. <laughs> Really, you know, if you, are, uh, if you don't believe in the existence of a God, if you don't believe that there is life after death, then it's kind of like a hopeless end. Why bother? Why be good? Why suffer? And all the threats of fear, abuse and violence are highly, highly, highly effective because your life ends and that's it. End of story. But if we were a Christian, then we would realise that no, how we live our life determines our after. And it is because of that, the martyrs, the Christian martyrs, were willing to die. Why? Several things. They saw Jesus come back to life with their own eyes. And if Jesus is testimony that he is the first fruit of the dead to rise again, then it means there is hope. That even if I die, even if my body perishes, even if I stand up to injustice, I have gained a crown of glory for the rest of eternity. And this short moment on earth would have been worth it. We have people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We have people like John Sung. We have people who basically planted our churches, missionaries. I'm aware of Indonesian missionaries who came and lived and died in our Malaysian forests. For what? If life is only for this time being, then it will be a waste of your life. But that they may plant the Gospels to all the nations. And this day, even when I go amongst the Orang Asli, they will tell me, you know, uh, Bapak saya, Bapak pada Bapak, Saudara, Kurun, 
ini dia datang dari mana? He comes from where? Dia mati, tapi kita hidup. They died here that we might live in the kingdom. And so, resurrection means endless hope. No resurrection, hopeless end. And we Christians are called to be a people of hope. Not just a people of hope, a people of joy. So one question I want to ask you to think about is, is your God a joyful God? Or is your God a gloomy God? Because your perception of God affects you. If my God is gloomy, I also have the right to be gloomy. Sometimes like Easter or Christmas, uh, people come very gloomy. <laughs> wow, so much stress. <laughs> gloom, gloom, gloom. But if we are to reflect the nature of God, we are a God in spite of all the sorrow and suffering filled with hope. And this is a statement from C.K. Barrett, a, a commentator who wrote in one of the early commentaries about 1 Corinthians in 1968. He says, Hopelessness breeds dissipation. In other words, if you are feeling hopeless, you just gradually just run out of steam and eventually stall and die. That is the sad fact about how we live our lives. So how you think about the resurrection affects how you live now. If we live by faith and not by sight, there is a tremendous difference in the amount of hope that we have, which is for me fantastic because when I look at Malaysia, when I look at our churches, including our Methodist churches, I have to have a lot of hope. Because looking at how things are, if I am hopeless, I would have given up and left the country a long time ago, which is what some people have done. But I also realize that even, even if things get really terrible and evil exists, it is only for this period of this material life. And so I often ask myself, in the light of eternity, in the light of eternity, does this matter? And am I wasting my time on things that are totally frivolous and temporary? Then Paul continues in his rhetoric, 15 verse 35, all the way on. <clears throat> now, uh, I want to, to close that portion there. When Paul says, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, he's using rhetoric. And he says, for people who don't believe in God, that's what they believe in. Then he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. You just have to look at our world now. Pretty much all of our world right now, very secular, very atheistic or agnostic, live to please yourself now. We want to live in order to gratify all our desires. It's a very hedonistic lifestyle. And then they say, you Christians are very boring people, very dull. I actually had a doctor friend <laughs> ask me, how do I answer my friends? I live according to this. I don't want to be like them. All these partying like crazy, sleeping around and all that. Then you say, you Christian, so boring, so moralistic all the time. Enjoy yourself, enjoy your life. And so I point her to this. Bad company corrupts good character. And it really is this, this significant life. Do you live with people who live in the light of eternity or do you live with people who live in the current moment 
And when they say that, you know what they mean. Live life now, now. seize the day, carpe diem. You seize the day, but we seize the day for an eternity. Uh, how are the dead raised? And this is found in verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And Paul's answer is, how foolish! You know, it's a, in a Malaysian term, you say, bodoh lah you! But you must understand that when, when the Bible refers to a fool, it, a fool is not necessarily a person who has no intelligence. The definition of a fool is one who does not acknowledge God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools are not afraid of God. Don't even acknowledge that He exists. So that's the biblical definition of a wise man who fears God and a fool who rejects, doesn't even acknowledge the existence of God. So, when Paul gives this answer, he says, how the dead raised, you fools, what he means is, God lah. It's not possible for you and you ask this question because you're not even factoring God in this picture. That's why it's a foolish question. It, it rejects the power of God to do this. Then he goes and explains what does he mean. The seed does not come into full fruition until it dies. We know this in nature. So he gives an example from nature. All seeds must die in order for it to come into fruition, for it to make something amazing happen. He then also continues, the seed planted is not the body that will come up from the ground. So, parents, <laughs> in case your children ask, what was Pastor rumbling about just now? We look at this and we know that there is a difference between the seed and the body. The seed is the one that we plant, but the body is the one that will rot away. But even in the sight of, of uh, our eyes, when we see the seed that is planted, the seed also disappears to be replaced by a tree that looks nothing like the seed. You cannot tell what the tree looks like just by looking at the seed unless you have seen what the plant looks like. And so he says this is what it is for mankind as well. Your body, this body, is not the seed. That's what he's saying. He's pointing to something else. The seed planted is not the body that will come out from the ground. And he says, God is the one that effects the transformation between the seed and the plant. Now, I've got a bit of a small video after this. I'm just going to ask our AV guys to show that. Now, if you look at this particular plant, unless you're an agriculturalist or a, or a plant person, uh, can you tell what plant this is? So pay attention and see whether you can figure it out and see what clues you get. Okay, so what plant is this? All our avid gardeners are... <laughs>
Some people guessing already. Look like bayam. <laughs> It's a dwarf sunflower. Uh, it's a smaller one compared to the bigger one, so if you're not so familiar with it. But the point I'm trying to make is you don't really know what it is until it finally reaches its full fruition. And from the seed, you can never see what the end is like. And so Paul is telling them, you are seeing yourself now and I'm telling you, within you is a seed. But what the resurrection body will be like, you don't know because you have not seen it yet. And the only one who has is Christ Jesus himself. So don't presume by seeing the body that you can figure out what the resurrection body will look like. And that's the amazing thing. That's why we say we live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith by the promises of the one who has gone before us, who has ascended and is himself the forerunner. And I look at Jesus and it says, wow, what could he do? He could appear, disappear, walk through walls and he still ate. But notice that when Jesus was still walking around for the 40 days before he ascended, he had not been fully translated into his glory. When we are resurrected, we are resurrected to be in the presence of God, fully translated. So even Jesus was kind of like in transition. So I imagine that body, what is it going to be like? I, you know, I, one of my greatest fantasies is when I'm dead, and I have this new spiritual body, what am I going to do? <laughs> I, sometimes when I was a kid, I used to think I would like to be a little bit like the silver surfer. <laughs> Travel through all the galaxies and you know, not be affected by vacuum and see all the vastness of God's creation. Let me ask you a, a question, friends. If you were to try and ask yourself, where exactly in your body is the spirit? Where would it be? Many scientists and doctors have tried to define life and they know that there is a moment in time when it translates from a living body to one that is slowly dissipating. They've not yet been able to pinpoint what it is. Some say there's some air or something that, that there's a slight change in weight at the moment of death. I don't know. I'm not at the point. But Paul himself is writing and saying that there is this thing, that there is this seed, and it is not material. It is celestial, spiritual. 
Now, what does he say? Um, before that, let me read what, what he writes in here. In verse 38, God gives it a body. Okay, uh, let me go back a little bit more. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Verse 36, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. So we all have to die. You want to go to heaven, you have to die first. Let me be quite clear. We all want to go to heaven, but we all don't want to die. <laughs> Which one you want? <laughs> what you sow does not come to life until it dies. And when you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just the seed. Our whole body, just like that avocado, just like every other seed, is not the seed. Something else in us is that seed. God gives it a body. God gives it a body as He has determined. And to each kind of seed, He gives its own body. All fishes, all flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, fish another. Now, uh, there's a little bit of Greek here, which I don't want to, to belabor too much, but there are two ways to say another. One is alos and the other one is heteros. Alos is another but similar. Heteros is another but not the same. Okay. And the one that is being used here is alos, another, similar. So we all have very similar flesh, but they're not really the same. God gives it a body as He has determined. Each kind of seed, He gives His own body. All flesh, not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. And He goes on. And then He suddenly uh, changes in verse 40 to the sun. So He refers to earthly flesh. Then He refers to celestial things. Uh, the sun has one kind of splendor, not flesh, but splendor. And if you have an ESV or some other version, he refers to it as another kind of body, uh, glory, sorry, glory, covering. The moon another and the stars another and the star differs from stars uh, in splendor. So will it be, and this is an important one, verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Life-giving spirit. So what has happened is this transition that whilst Adam died and because the Spirit of God in him had died with him, now comes Jesus who comes from above, not from the earth. And he is a life-giving Spirit. What is that Spirit? Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God in you is that spiritual seed that will eventually be clothed in a new body, a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Then he goes, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable, that of you which is flesh and blood of this earth. It cannot inherit or cannot enter into that spiritual realm cannot exist. In other words, in order for you to exist in the presence of God, in the kingdom of God, in this uh, closeness of an awesome, all-consuming God, you need a new spiritual body. Not like this one. And some of you might be saying, Hallelujah, please take my body away. <laughs> Give me something else that won't ache, that won't leak, that won't do all kind of weird things when I don't want it to. It is a hope to those who are terminally ill. It is a hope to those who know that they are facing death. It is a hope to them that one day we will all be resurrected and all be changed. And that change will be a change that is far beyond our imagining. Paul gives the example, flesh is like this, covered by one thing. Stars, suns, cosmos, covered by another thing. Your spiritual body is going to be covered with another covering. No eye has seen, no mind conceived the glories that God has prepared for you. So I'm really excited, you know. <laughs> I'm going to meet my Father in heaven. He has a new body for me which is going to last forever and ever. Amen kind of thing. And all my current aches and pains, all our sufferings, the people who are suffering in the jails in China, in South Korea, in North Korea, sorry, in Kazakhstan, all my friends who are in touch with me, who suffer persecution, look forward to this great hope. And they know that their current suffering on this earth is temporary in comparison to the immeasurable treasure of the eternal resurrection. And because of that, they continue to stand up for what is right, what is true. I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Sleep is the term that Jesus used as a code for die. He says we will all not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. What he means is those who are already dead will be changed. Those who are still alive when Christ comes will also be changed. What you imagine of your body right now is going to be different, yet of another type. And so when people ask me, is it okay to cremate? Is it okay to think? My question is, funerals are for the living. What gives you peace? Some of my friends of late have come to me and they say, I regret cremating. Not because I'm afraid that my dad will not be reconstituted properly. <laughs> That's foolish. God can do it. And you know, in the Old Testament, we have so many situations of prophets being beheaded, of people being sawn in half, of people being lost at sea. Our God is good and He gives us a new body. Doesn't matter. You know, it's like the avocado. Even if I eat all the... <laughs> all the flesh of the avocado, the seed 
is the one that is most important. And that seed, that Spirit of God in us is indestructible. And God gives you a new body. So cremation or burial or whatever, if you bury at sea, really, theologically, doesn't matter. But, but, does it help the family? And so I'm going to relate to you one of the things my friend said. The mother told me, I kind of regret following what my husband said. My husband said, cremate me, take my ashes and go and scatter it in the sea. And she said, now every year at this date, when they want to remember the appa, they got nowhere to go. And they mourn because they want to come to a place where they can remember but the father has been scattered to the, to the, to the sea. So what do they do? Uh, sometimes they go to the river where they scattered it. Sometimes they come to a place and they hang out where the father used to hang out. And so, as I said, funerals, memorials, what we do is for the living. The dead don't care. <laughs> They're sleeping. <laughs> they will rise one day, different body. But it is those who continue to mourn for them. So now I advise people like that. Lah. Do you intend at some point to basically provide a remembrance of what has been happening? But we will all be changed. All will be changed. No more tears. No more leaking body. No more aches. No more pains. An eternity with God. Then he comes to this statement. You know that bit that death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Firm, strong, unshakable, immovable. But what are we trying to be strong for? The resurrection proves four immutable truths. I say that again. The resurrection presents four immutable truths, in other words, four truths that define uh, what we believe as Christians. The first truth is that truth is stronger than falsehood. That truth is stronger than lies and deceit and falsehood. That good is stronger than evil. That love is stronger than hatred and that life is stronger than death. These four truths about the resurrection are seen to us through the gospel of Christ. Life stronger than death, good stronger than evil, love stronger than hatred. And it reminds us that that is what we need to continue to persist in and the choice we make. What is the application be firm and strong, immovable. That's what it says in verse 8, but for verse 58. So if I tell you, be firm, firm about what? <laughs> be strong, strong about what? That should be what's coming in, if you're still thinking and tracking with me. And the answer is the gospel that Paul preaches, because in verse 1, it says, the gospel in which you stand, be firm and strong and immovable that you hold firmly to which you the things that you are being saved and resurrection is one of those things 
So friends, are you strong in your belief? Do you live according to what you believe? Because if you believe in eternity, but you live only for the now, you don't seem to be very firm about what you believe in. The second application, it says, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord always. Work that builds up the church. In verse 5, you know, Paul says, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord always. Right? It is the work that builds up the church. We find that in chapter 14, verse 12. What are we doing? What is the work of the church? What is the building of the church? And trust me, it is not about buying more properties. It is not buying more buildings. The church is comprised of believers. We are living building blocks of the church invisible. And so I'm also not saying, let's go out and make this a 1,000, 10,000, 20,000 congregation. No, 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 no. What it means is go forth and add to the kingdom of God by adding to His church. Missionaries do that when they spread the gospel and bring them in. Social concerns does when we go wherever we feed the poor, the kingdom of God is established there. That is God's building. Whatever work builds up the church. Third application. Your labor is not in vain. Now, Paul could have said, your labor will not be in vain. Future tense. But instead, he uses, your labor is current, present tense. What you do now is not in vain. You are living now in order to be for the future. But we are not yet resurrected. And so when someone comes to you and says, your disease, your pain and your ache is because you have sinned and you must repent of this, that's wrong teaching. Because one day all of us will die. Are you saying at the point of death we are all sinning? No. That is what we call an over-realized eschatology. It takes the promises that are given in the future and assumes that it is now. That is not the case. Our resurrection body is given when Christ comes. Our fullness in the Spirit occurs then. Until then, we are the seed with immeasurable potential and power and value encased in a body that is going to pass. And so while the spirit goes stronger, the body suffers the ravages of sin. Your labor is not in vain. Even when you feel you cannot, you can and will. It is a labor under the cross sustained by hope based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is a quote from Lorenzen. Our labor is under the cross. So we're not fools to think that everything is clear and rosy. There are good days and there are days when we will look to the eternity. Dear friends, let us pray.